Before we begin today, I want to take this moment to mention and honor the 215 indigenous children whose remains were found at a former Kamloops residential school here in British Columbia. The loss of indigenous youth within the residential school system and the intergenerational impact and trauma for those who've survived the residential school system here in Canada is a very dark part of our history. Yes, we have made a lot of progress, but we still have a long way to go before true reconciliation is achieved here in Canada. So to the 215 children, their families, and all Indigenous people here in Canada and elsewhere, we take this moment to honour you. And while we can't change the past, we can all collectively work to change the future. So please join me right now for a moment of silence to honour those 215 children and all Indigenous people for whom the residential school experience was a trauma like no one should ever have to endure. Welcome to another episode of the Tom Shimmer Podcast. Happy Monday, everyone. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Now, before we get going this week, I just want to remind you that this is the final episode before we kick into summer mode and into a more relaxed schedule and the summer series where I'm going to have an episode about every other week. And that will be focused on one singular topic. We're going to have a roundtable discussion on that topic. Uh, So stay tuned for that. That'll be coming out, obviously, in a couple of weeks. The best way to keep up with topics and dates is to either follow, subscribe to the podcast because you'll get the episodes automatically or follow the podcast Twitter account to know what episodes are coming up. I'm hoping to have an episode every two weeks or so, but of course, when you're scheduling multiple people, you have to try to coordinate everyone's schedule. So we'll figure that out. Come September, we'll get back to the regular schedule, the regular agenda, the regular routine, etc. Thanks again for listening this week. And as always, a big welcome to any new listeners joining in for the first time. Your listening and following the podcast is greatly appreciated. And if you enjoy the podcast, please don't hesitate to spread the word on social media or with your friends and colleagues. Today, my guest is Ken O'Connor. We explore his journey from Melbourne to Toronto. We talk about assessment and grading, of course. And we learn about his illustrious field hockey umpiring career. You know, it's always interesting when you speak with somebody who uh, began as someone who inspired your work. Uh, You became colleagues, and then you become friends. So a really interesting conversation with Ken today. In Assessment Corner, uh, I'm going to talk about this idea of teaching to the test and what we can do to try to mitigate the fact that sometimes people's behavior changes when they know they are being tested. So that's today's plan. Let's get to it. interview with Ken O'Connor is coming up, but first, don't at me. But I want to open this week with a focus on bullshit. There, I got your attention, didn't I? (laughs) 
I recently started reading the book Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World by Carl Bergstrom and Jevin White. Carl Bergstrom is an evolutionary biologist and professor in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington, and he is an expert on epidemics. Jevin West is an associate professor in the Information School, also at the University of Washington. So in the book, Bergstrom and West outline a set of tools to cut through even the most intimidating data, tools that help us cut through the bullshit. Now, has there ever been a time where more bullshit is floating around in our society? Misinformation, disinformation, fake news, everything these days is hyperpartisan. I think it was easier to spot bullshit back in the day. But now there is this relentless assault on our common sense, an avalanche of information that any side of an argument can draw upon. I'm convinced now that changing one's mind is a lost art. Many of you have heard me say this in the past, but it just feels like no one is in the business of even being open to changing their position. The, the majority of people seem to immediately go all in with their stance so that changing minds becomes an impossible ask because it means admitting you were wrong or inaccurate. The idea that your thinking was inaccurate, it's impossible now because people feel they'll look foolish. And of course, the other side of an argument will believe they've won the argument and waste no time mocking the person for being so stupid or how could you think that or anything like that. Now, I'm just over 100 pages into the book. But I want to share three ideas that sort of caught my attention and caused me to reflect a little bit and connect them a little bit to our experiences as well in education. The first big idea is that bullshit is much easier to create than to clean up. Some of you may have heard of the Brandolini principle. This is coined by Italian software engineer Alberto Brandolini, and his principle is this, quote, the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude bigger than that needed to produce it. Then you have Uriel Finelli, who, who said, an idiot can create more bullshit than you could ever hope to refute. And then you have Jonathan Swift, all the way back into 1710. Falsehood flies, and truth comes limping after it. So when taken together all of those different ideas, Bergstrom and West remind us that, one, bullshit takes less work to create than to clean up. Two, bullshit takes less intelligence to create than clean up. And three, it spreads faster than efforts to clean it up. Think about the information that's out there right now about vaccines or the U.S. election or just rumors that are sensational. Like once it's out there, it's really hard to pull it back. I mean, even newspapers will do this, right? They'll publish a sensational story on the front page or the top of a website, and it'll grab the headlines. But then they find out the story is incorrect or there's some untruths within the story. And what do they do? Well, they publish the correction on page nine because it just doesn't get the clicks or it just doesn't get the attention. The point of modern propaganda, according to Gary Kasparov, isn't only to misinform or to push an agenda. It's to exhaust your critical thinking and to annihilate the truth. This sort of speaks to me about how important it is in education to develop our critical thinking skills. And I think most of us knew this already, but 
when you think about the kind of 21st century learning agenda that I know here in British Columbia that we're talking about and, and, and is part of our new revised curriculum. Again, not that new anymore, but that's part of our focus. And a lot of schools and jurisdictions are looking at critical thinking. It just reminded me of how important it is to be able to develop those critical thinking skills and to be able to think through that which we are consuming. So I think that's really important for us to remember. Now, the second big idea that jumped out at me comes from page 43 of the book. Bergstrom and West write this, quote, if the data that go into the analysis are flawed, the specific technical details of that analysis don't matter, end quote. They go on to say that one can obtain stupid results from bad data without any statistical trickery. So Bergstrom and West in the book talk about being able to spot bullshit based on data and that being a critical skill and that for some reason we collectively seem to be hesitant to question quantitative data. Like once we see it, that this idea that numbers never lie, but we of course know that's not true. Numbers, they write, offer the biggest bang for the bullshitting buck. And it makes me think of assessment design. You know, crunch whatever numbers you want articulate any data sets you feel relevant, if the information, if the assessment results, if that information that serves as an input to that data are based on poorly designed assessments that don't reach the full cognitive complexity or depth of thinking required by the students, then the resulting analysis of that data is going to be flawed to begin with. So there's no trickery required here, but we're definitely not going to get the information that we were hoping for. And the third big idea has to do with causality. Bergstrom and West write this on page 51. Quote, People take evidence about the association between two things and try to sell you a story about how one causes the other. End quote. They call this a pervasive source of bullshit and say that it's human nature to infer that when two things are associated, one causes the other. Association isn't causation. In other words, just because A happens before B does not mean that A caused B, even when A and B are associated, as so often our attribution of causality is erroneous. Now, to illustrate this, there's a graph on page 71 of the book, and I know that <laughs> talking about a graph on a podcast is not exactly a great idea. But it's a graph that came from a Reddit post that shows a direct correlation from 1998 to present, a direct correlation between the rise of organic food sales and the rise in autism. Now, obviously, there is zero correlation between organic food sales and autism. But if one were to look at the graph on face value, one could assign causality based on the data, based on the facts, right? Both totals are facts, but there is zero connection to them. Everyone today seems to have the facts, but the leap to causality is where the bullshit begins. This makes me think of the way we talk about assessment, especially the way feedback is talked about now. Now, you've heard me rant about this before, so I'll spare you all of the gory details, but nowhere do I see this association becoming causality more than the exaggerated causation associated with the Ruth Butler studies on feedback and grades from the late 1980s. 
the causal relationship has never been established between grades and feedback. Yes, there is a more favorable course of action. Yes, the research indicates that grades and scores can interfere with a student's willingness to keep learning, but that's not causality. Okay, this idea that give a student a grade and the learning stops have, has never, that causation has never been proven in the academic literature. And we do a disservice to our profession with these inflated claims to keep an agenda and a position alive. Why can't we just tell the truth? Tell the truth that everything in learning is messy, that everything in assessment is context-dependent and nuanced, that there are no absolutes, that assessment is like relationships, okay? If you begin a sentence with the words always or never, you're either unequivocally wrong or at least exaggerating. I know telling the truth about research isn't sexy. I know it doesn't draw a lot of attention. It doesn't allow us to rant on a keynote stage or draw 500 likes on social media. But if we're going to keep exaggerating the research findings and reduce them to oversimplified causality statements, we're actually going to regress as a profession. The sooner we understand that association isn't causation, the more honest our professional dialogue will become. I see this also with the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation crowd. Human behavior is incredibly complex, but you wouldn't know it by the way people talk about it. First, the extrinsic diminishes the intrinsic crowd, seems to forget that when students violate social norms, when students break school rules, we seem to have no problem applying external consequences. So external rewards diminish intrinsic motivation, but for some reason, extrinsic consequences, we have no problem with that. Second, it reveals a level of hypocrisy because the the same people that would say extrinsic diminishes the intrinsic, that same crowd, many of them would be frustrated that their supervisor, their principal, their superintendent, doesn't acknowledge their hard work and commitment. Wait a minute. Why does that bother you? Why do you need that extrinsic validation? Can't we just say we're motivated by both? I mean, there's research on both sides. You may choose to ignore some of the research or assign less credibility to it, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And ask yourself this, how many points programs do you belong to? Air miles, credit cards, grocery stores, Starbucks card, frequent flyer miles with airlines. I mean, we will choose a stopover, like a layover in a city rather than a direct flight because the direct flight isn't my preferred airline. That happens all the time. So companies spend thousands, if not millions of dollars on these points programs. But sure, external doesn't work. Anyway, I highly recommend this book. And especially in this day and age, when bullshit is so prevalent. It has never been easier to create bullshit, it's never been easier to spread bullshit, and it's never been easier to maintain bullshit. Now, it's not a light read, but it's a necessary one. And I'll just finish with this. This book explains a lot about what we've seen in the 2000s, especially over the past decade, especially over the past five years, especially during the pandemic.
This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. You can find out more at teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Now let's get back to the episode. Joining me today for the interview is Ken O'Connor. If you have been part of any grading reform efforts, chances are quite high you've read one of Ken's books, especially 15 Fixes for Broken Grades or How to Grade for Learning. You've heard him speak at a conference. You've maybe interacted with him online. You've done all of the above, or you've done all of the above multiple times. He has presented in every province and territory in Canada, I believe 47 U.S. states, 35 countries around the world. The career has been illustrious and is still going strong. The influence has truly been global. And the legacy of grading reformists, including myself, uh, is a long list of following Ken's work. Ken and Tom Gusky, for me, have been two of the most influential, if not the most influential, uh, thinkers and educators on my thinking around grading and reporting. And of course, listeners will remember that Tom was in episode one this year. And as we have this final episode before we kick into summer mode, I'm pleased to welcome Ken O'Connor to the Tom Schumer podcast. So Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, I'm very impressed by what you've done with the podcast, and it's really exciting to be be part of it today. Oh, well, thanks so much. I, I appreciate you saying that, Ken, and uh, certainly wouldn't have it any other way. You, you truly, I, I meant what I said when I said that, you know, m myself, I'm not alone in the number of educators that you've influenced over the years in terms of our thinking around grading, reporting, assessment, et cetera. Uh, you, you definitely uh, are someone that I've looked to and been inspired by. Uh, certainly dug into your work. And, uh, and it was just a great experience for me to become colleagues at conferences and now to consider you a friend. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation as well. Let's start with the autobiography. Um, you started teaching as a geography teacher in Melbourne, Australia. So how do you end up in Toronto? Well, uh, in those days, I mean, that was a long time ago. And um, Australia was pretty isolated in those days, more, certainly more so than now. And so like many young Australians, my idea was to go overseas for a number of years. Um, and in the late 60s, there was a great shortage of teachers in North America. And so schools and school districts were advertising in Australia and New Zealand for teachers. And I went in for an interview with um, two uh, officials from the Toronto board in uh, in Melbourne and they offered me a job and I said, thank you. And so I, I moved to Toronto um, uh, in September of 69 on a three-year contract. And my idea was three years in Toronto, a year in England, substitute teaching, teaching for a month, travel for a month and so on. And in the fifth year, I was gonna wander back somehow, Africa, Asia, wherever. Um, but um, I met and married my wife in Toronto. Uh, and so um, the end of June 74, we both quit our jobs. We traveled around uh, mainly Europe and some of Asia for six months on our way to Australia with the idea of deciding where we were going to live. I taught at the high school that I had attended as a student for the year. Um, in October, they said, uh, you've got to let us know whether you plan to come back next year. And so the big decision had to be made. And we decided that the way we saw our life um, that we could do it better in Toronto. So um, late 75, we flew across the Pacific and been here ever since and likely to remain. Yeah. 
It's uh, it's interesting when you think about, uh, I think so many of us think about sort of modern travel and the connectedness of, of the modern world. And you, and you can see how how isolating it might have felt, you know, in, in Australia. And the idea that that uh, I think it's in some respects a foreign concept to us that uh, Toronto school district or any school district in Canada would go recruiting, uh, you know, overseas. We, we hear about recruiting overseas, but often for us, the idea of overseas schools. But I guess when you're in Australia, Canada is overseas and international and, and you end up uh, coming our way. So you end up in Toronto, you, you, you're, you're teaching in Toronto, and then let's flash forward now to focus on assessment and of course, what you are most known for, which is grading and reporting. So how does a geography teacher from Toronto become the grade doctor? How does, how does grading become uh, you know, your area of expertise? In March of 1990, um... I applied for and got a position as a curriculum coordinator in my school district. And it was advertised as um, two thirds subject based geography, uh, grade seven to 12 geography, which was my subject area, a shared responsibility for elementary um, social studies, because in Ontario, it's social studies to grade six and geography and history separate, post seven to 12. And one third of the job was to be determined uh, because the school district was transitioning from coordinators that were just subject focused to the idea that they should be partly subject focused and partly cross-curricular. And so what eventuated, what eventually happened was the, the third, I became assessment and evaluation. It was sort of you know, early nineties assessment was starting to mm-hmm. uh, be a focus. And they said, well, you have, you know, you've got a third, you've got to be something. So they said, it's assessment for you. And in a pretty short order, I became fascinated by it because I would have to admit that I knew very little about it in March of 1990. Um, but I came to realize fairly quickly, partly through, I'd say to a large extent through going to a three day train, the trainer with, uh, Rick Stiggins in Toronto, which was maybe the most eye-opening experience of my life. And then, um, so I became more and more focused on assessment. And just to give an indication of that, um, seven years later, it was a term appointment. When the job was reposted, it was reposted as two-thirds assessment and one-third subject. But the grading piece came up through um, 94, roughly middle of 94, I read an article from a college professor in Chicago that was entitled Guidelines for Grading. And I thought it made no sense at all. So I wrote a short critical letter to the editor of the NAS Bulletin. And she wrote back and said, if you've got some ideas, why don't you write an article? Well, I was just into criticizing at that point. So I ignored it. November of 94, I get another letter from her. Responses from the professor made even less sense, I thought, than his original article. And again, she said, why don't you write an article? Well, twice challenged, I felt I had to respond. So I collected some resources, thought about it, came up with the eight guidelines, submitted it. It was published in the NAS Bulletin in May of 95. Um, And I started doing some work around it in my school district and areas roundabout. And somebody said, well, you know, this is a big enough topic that you should turn it into a book. And so that led to how to grade for learning the first edition that yeah, wow. was published in, in 99. And it's sort of, you know, grew from there. Yeah. 
Yeah, your timing. Uh, uh, just thinking about your comment about it's always easier to be the critic than it is to come up with your own ideas, right? It's like, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to put forth the ideas. I just want to criticize what someone else has said. But when you were pressed, you 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 really put forth you know different ideas and different ways of thinking. And I certainly remember, you know, in the early stages of my career in the 1990s, as you say, assessment wasn't really. A, a major topic, but you could see assessment as a relevant topic starting to bubble to the surface. And I think it aligns a lot with the standards movement in the United States, the outcomes-based you know, movements in Canada and around the world. We started to see that, that bubble up there. I have the second edition of, uh, of How to Grade for Learning. I, I don't have the first edition, uh, but it was great to see that cover there. So yeah, and, and I think that, as you say, that, that the timing of that was perfect because with all that was changing in education at that time, we, we had to start talking about grading and reporting and what that looked like as well. So let's flash forward now to 2021 and think about we are at various stages of, I, I don't want to say that we're we're over the pandemic, but we certainly are in various stages of, of getting back to some semblance of normalcy. So I'm wondering from your perspective, um, you know, all of the experiences you've had, and I, I know there's a number of us that have worked with schools over the course of the pandemic, but I'm wondering from your perspective, when you look back now at the last 14 months, and, and certainly there'll be a lot of adjustments that will continue into the fall, but when you look back over the last 14 to 16 months, et cetera, what assessment and grading lessons do you think we learned and experienced through the pandemic that you feel should maybe remain a permanent part of our practice? Yeah, I, I think there are a number. And I think that, you know, as several people have said, it's provided us with an opportunity to really look at what we're doing and saying, you know, what have we do been doing that really didn't work? What changes did we make in the pandemic? You know, there's sort of some silver linings to, to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And I think maybe one of them is, I think it was an article in Utopia that had the headline, teachers opt for more leniency and get better work. I wouldn't call it leniency. I would call it flexibility. Mm -hmm. that, and, and really, that's what the um, teacher that wrote about it was. She said, you know, I always used to say no. And this year I said yes to extensions for getting assessment evidence in and things like that. And so I think, you know, around timelines for submission of assessment evidence, um, around homework, around reassessment, I think there's been an understanding when conditions have been difficult that we had to be more flexible or lenient, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think, you know, people have seen huge value in that because certainly this teacher said she's absolutely continuing that because she's seen the response from students is, is better um, evidence that she gets. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think that's a big one. Um, I think we've seen the benefit of, um, you know, a lot of schools and districts went to pass-fail or pass-fail incomplete or, or, you know, two or three levels. And I think this, people have seen some real benefits in that. And I think that will continue to some extent. Um, unfortunately, probably not in Canada because of our provincial requirements for percentage grades. Um, and I think maybe the biggest one, though, is the understanding of uh, the student involvement piece, the student agency, the, the student self-regulation. And mm. the May issue of Ed Leadership, uh, John Hattie has an article um, about learnings from the pandemic. And I thought one of his is maybe sums it up most for me, where he said in virtual and hybrid classrooms, those who were most likely to succeed were students with higher self-regulation skills. And, and I mean, think, I think that's been over the last couple of years, the biggest sort of evolution in my thinking 
is that it's got to be about the learning. It's got to be about the learner. And I think the pandemic has shown that. And I mean, Hattie says, as you know, supports that with research. And I think we've heard the same thing from schools and districts that very often where there was greater student self empowerment and where they were more focused on standards, they didn't have the same issues with huge failure rates um, and disengagement that they had in school districts that were more traditional. Yeah. You are, from my experience, you are so spot on with that because I, I sort of see it in three phases. Uh, the first phase being that the schools that struggled the most during the pandemic were the schools that were not grounded in any sort of semblance of assessment literacy, not really grounded in sound grading. Then the next level is the schools that had a firm grasp of sound assessment and understood how to focus on standards and, and quality and building clear criteria. They had a much easier, no one had it easy, but they had a much easier time. But that third level, the schools and districts where student agency, where student investment was already a part of of the learning experience to me was uh, yet another level where schools, again, I don't want to call it seamless, but it was as seamless as it could be expected. And so I think you're right about those silver linings. The issue that this, the word choice, again, the idea of leniency, there's such a connotation to that word and, and, you know, what's inferred by using that word leniency as opposed to flexibility. I think, I think you're, you're pointing out the idea of flexibility is a much stronger perspective because that's really what it's about. Leniency, you know, implies this kind of uh, uh, parental, you know, letting it, letting it go this time, but, you know, we're relaxing our expectations when that's really not the focus of, of any of that. So I think the point about finding the silver linings during the pandemic is, is a good one, because I think a lot of schools are starting to realize that we were forced to have conversations that we may have put off, but because of the pandemic, we had to sort of look in the mirror and say, we've got to get some things right. It, It brings me to my next question, which is, We talked earlier about How to Grade for Learning, which was published in 1999. So 22 years ago, um, How to Grade for Learning comes out. And, you know, that certainly was an influential book on so many people around the world. But I'm wondering from your perspective, are you surprised 22 years later that grading reform is still somewhat contentious, that there's still this resistance and tension around eliminating so many of our traditional grading practices? Does that surprise you here in 2021? Yeah, it does surprise me because I think um, so much of the sorts of things that, you know, we talk about and say we, we think schools and districts should be doing seem to me that they, they're just so logical. I mean, and most of it also has strong research support, but sometimes we don't have the research because it's still relatively new. But to me, it's, it's research support where it exists, but the rest of it is sort of logical analysis. Uh, and it just some it just seems to follow logically for me that and I think you make a good point about assessment literacy where there's a lack of assessment literacy that's where there are problems but when we're assessment literate we understand that we've got to be clear about purpose we've got to be clear about learning goals um, and that when we have those two things so many of the others you know not including uh, behaviors um, is is logical but I think you know one thing that I think has jumped out at me too is when we talk about that flexibility leniency, I think a, part, a significant part of it is that a lot of teachers, largely because of they never learned about it, it really comes from understanding or misperceptions or misunderstanding about motivation. I mean, I think so much of it, and parenting as well, 
is still based around, you know, carrots and sticks, extrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. Yet we know from the research and from authors like Daniel Pink that the motivation that makes a difference in, in, from learning is intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. And so to use punishments for not getting things in on time or zeros for missing work as punishment, people may think that works but the evidence is absolutely clear that it doesn't work. So I think one of the things that schools should be doing with teachers is some professional development around modern micro psychological research about motivation. And I think that would make a big difference. It's, it is interesting that um, so many, it, it's such a cynical view of learners to suggest that the only reason that they're interested in completing any sort of assignment or producing any evidence of learning is because they're promised some points or promised. It, it, to me, it's just, it feels like such a cynical view of, of kids and teenagers when, when kids and teenagers are, are naturally curious and, and want to learn, they love to learn. But the problem there, Tom, I think is that if that's all that's ever done is that is the only thing. I mean, I've been done some work recently in a school district and I think this comes from assessment, assessment illiteracy amongst the administrators, mm -hmm. where they are required to have two scores in the grade book every week. Right. And, and then they say in the pandemic, our kids weren't motivated, they weren't engaged. Well, if it's all about the points, why would they be motivated? Uh, right. And, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, a vicious circle almost. Oh, for sure. And it's, it is that idea that it's, it's somewhat ironic that we lament the students for becoming that which we created. You know, students, I've been saying for years, you know, probably over 10 years, I've been saying, you know, kids don't come to school in kindergarten as grade grubbers. Mm -hmm. they, they get immersed in this system. We condition them to, to be point accumulators or harvesting points or however you want to phrase that. And then they move themselves, you know, grow themselves into high school. And then we lament the fact that all they care about are their marks and their grades and their points and their scores. And, and we're the ones that kind of conditioned that. So I think we have to look in the mirror and, and, and really try to address that. Yeah. The way I put it is we trained them into it. Yep. We now have a responsibility to train them out of it. Yeah, and I, 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 I mean, I don't think that's necessarily easy, but I mean, no. we know it can be done. For sure. Where do you think the resistance comes from? Where, where do you think, you know, people who are uh, not, not just, I, I don't, you know, there's, there's a continuum and there's a range of responses. And one of the responses might just be from a, again, a cynical perspective that just says, look, I don't want to do anything different. I don't want to change. Okay. There, there's always people like that in, in every industry, but where, where does that like resistance come from? Like, where do you think teachers who are the, the bulk of the resistance to say more modern grading practices, where do you think that's sourced for them? Well, I think mainly two things. One is that the idea that you're saying that I was wrong. I you know that to, to, if I'm going to change, I have to admit I was wrong. And, and I, I, I think that's very hard for some people. But I think what we, the way we address that is we say, you know, we know more now. We know so much more about how assessment can be used effectively. We know so much more about how students learn. And so when we know more, uh, we, it doesn't make what we did wrong in the past wrong. It gives us the opportunity to make what we do now and in the future better. And that, that's the way we've, we've got to look at it. And I think the other one is all of the external influences, uh, the parent piece that, as I've heard you say before, you know, all the parents went to school and, and, and they somehow think it should be like when they were in school, even though the world has changed 
so dramatically. And so it's all, you know, the parents won't like it. We've got to get parent buy-in and that's tough. And then I think uh, certainly at the high school level, it's the, the impact of post-secondary college admission and what are the beliefs about what is needed for that, even though we know that's changing dramatically. Yeah. The, 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 the university college um, card, if you will, I think it's overplayed so much in, in terms of, uh, you know, any jurisdiction, the idea that a, that a university within any jurisdiction would not accept any students from that state or province because that state or province changed their grading program or they changed the way that they report learning is absurd. It's a, it's a, it's just fear. It's a fear mongering tactic that really seeks to undercut any sort of reform because most universities accept students from around the world and not every jurisdiction around the world uses a percentage-based grading system. So the idea that no students from Ontario would get into the University of Toronto, but they would accept students from all over the world. It's, it's just kind of an absurd concept, but it does get parents worked up. And I think that sometimes, you know, the tactic is the fear-mongering does get parents to um, falsely be concerned about the fact that, oh, our, our children won't get into college or get into university. Um, I, I want to go ahead. To say on that, I think that's why we've got to be very careful when, if we're proposing changes, we've got to be very clear about what's going to change. Right. But we also have to be very clear about what's not going to change. And while there are some high schools that for a long time haven't had grades, I think we have to be clear in most high schools, uh, we can do superb standards based, we can do almost all of the things. But yes, at the end, we'll still determine a grade, there'll still be letter grades or percentage grades on the report card, and you can still calculate GPAs and all of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, I think it would be better if we didn't have those. But in a realistic assessment future, they're still going to be there. Yeah. As, as long as the need to communicate to outside sources, outside agencies is there, we're, we're going to have to have some, some level of summarization that communicates succinctly um, the, the number, you know, how students have performed and, and how they've learned and where they've grown to. And, and again, their level of readiness for the next level at, at the university level. I know that there's a, you know, whenever you mention the word grade, that it's such an interesting term when, when we talk about grade and there are folks out there advocating for going gradeless and, and sometimes, you know, they have such a very narrow definition of what grades are and what they can be. And for me, grades will be as meaningful or as meaningless as the teachers and the educators make them uh, and the way we communicate. You're right. Ideal, maybe not, but, but there's always a place for those. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking of, of international students and thinking of you know, international programs, I want to drill down on a, a topic that we haven't really explored here on the podcast yet uh, this year, but I knew you, know, you were someone like myself who works with international schools and, and even schools who are in North America who, who employ specialized programs, whether it's AB, uh, sorry, AP or IB. So I want to get your take on how schools who implement, you know, the DP program at, at the International Baccalaureate program or the AP, let's, let's take one at a time. Let's start with IB. One of the interesting things I hear frequently, and I'll be interested to get your take on this is, well, Tom, you know, we're an IB school. Um, we really can't do standards-based grading because we have to kind of follow what, what IB tells us. And, I, and I've heard sort of three responses when people talk that way. I've worked with some schools where they've said, you know, we have to follow the, the one through seven scale exactly as it's laid out by the DP and we have to follow it to the letter of the law and all of that. I've also heard schools take another approach to say, you know what, the one through seven is IB's issue. 
that's their problem. We're going to create a one through four scale. We're going to assess the learning on four gradations of quality. We're not going to change our entire grading system because we have to submit a few times a year to IB. And then I've heard others say, we're going to use the one through seven, but we're going to create kind of our own kind of hybrid model, which is we'll use the one through seven, but it'll be a more localized scale. So <clears throat> that's a long-winded way to get to the question, which is, so from your perspective, What's the best way for IB schools uh, specifically, not, we're not really talking about PYP or MYP, we're, we're talking specifically about D, the diploma program. What's the best way for IB schools to approach grading reform? Well, I think you know, they basically have a standards-based system. I mean, at the DP, they have four categories for every subject and they're somewhat similar, but sometimes different words. So they really have four standards, four categories of learning. So they've got that as a starting point. And then they have seven levels, which is that, uh, rather than you know, percentages. So they've got what I see as being two of the key characteristics, focus on standards to somewhere, a number of limited number of levels, which I believe should be between two and seven. So right. the, the basics are there. It's, it's what IB is basically. And yeah. when it comes to the levels, I think it's, um, again, I think it, those things that you suggested making are trying to make it far more complex than it really is. And maybe I have a perspective on this from being in Ontario and Toronto, where the provincial requirement is percentage grades uh, at the end. That's what they've got to have on the report card on the transcript. And so what all the IB schools in Ontario did was so that they were all doing the same thing. So, you know, it didn't mean matter which, which IB school you're at. Mm -hmm. They came up with a conversion scale. They do all their assessment in the seven levels. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, they have this conversion scale that converts it. To, well, they do it actually three conver conversions, the IB. And then Ontario actually has four levels. Yeah. Uh, which become 13 levels because there are pluses and minuses. Right. And then, then there are the percentages. And so what the IB schools came up with was seven IB levels. What does, how do those seven levels translate to the four come 13 Ontario levels to percentages? So, I mean, that's the way that they chose to do it because they're serving two masters. Right. Their kids get an IB diploma. They also get an Ontario diploma. So they needed all of those pieces but if you don't have the requirement, you know, the two additional requirements, just do it in the seven levels. But if you want to do something that are different from the seven levels, just come up with some sort of a conversion. I mean, it right. seems, I mean, to me, it's, it seems simple. I don't know why people would see it as being so complex. So let's, let's explore that for a moment. Do you, do you think, is it, it's probably a combination of both, but do you think it's an, either a misunderstanding of say what standards-based or sound grading practices are, or are we are they overthinking it? Are they making too much of the idea of, because sometimes I'll say to people, standards-based grading just means grading based on the standards. It's not that complicated. And yet we see, we see it enough, we see the complication enough for people to realize that it is a thing. That, that there is some tension and some, some complexity that arises with schools that have implemented IB. So do you think it's a combination of both of those or do you think it's one over the other? I, I think it's a combination, but I think it's more overthinking it because to, yeah. as I said, I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward. You've got four categories for every IB subject. You've got seven levels um, with your, the descriptions already there for you. And so 
that that seems to me to be pretty simple. And then yeah. if if you don't want if you don't want to just do that because of you know what the school thinks or because of requirements for the jurisdiction, mm -hmm. then make those adjustments. Like I just and and don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting the way that the Ontario IB schools have done it is you know the gold standard, but it was a a way for them to to serve two masters. Yeah. It, I, I don't know that there is a gold standard. Uh, I think we we all have to make some imperfect decisions as as we move forward. And, and I, I sort of see it the same way. I get that question a lot. And I just think, you know, we're, we're overthinking it and and making too much of what some might think is uh, is what standards based grading is. And, and maybe some of us and, and I'm using the royal us, not just you and I can, but but the royal we maybe in the advocacy for precision and specificity and accuracy, we've maybe gone too far in the sense that folks are now feeling like they have to drill down to a level of granularity that I, I don't know this. I'm just, this is, this is sort of conjecture on my point uh, on my part, I should say, but just thinking about that we've been so adamant about accuracy and clarity and specificity that they, we've almost to a fault had them frozen to make a holistic or a more sort of uh, general judgment about where a student is in their learning. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about levels. So it's an, it's an interesting um, uh, uh, dilemma that so many face, because I think my, my feeling as well is that it's, it, we're just overthinking it and making too much of it. I mean, I think the complicating factor is that they, students get a school grade for AP and IB courses for an externally examined course. And that somehow or other there's, sometimes more emphasis on the school grade when really all that matters. I mean, to me, simply if I was teaching IB or AP, I'm coaching those kids to do the best they can on the external exam. And, you know, how they did in September or December or even April is basically irrelevant. And so that, but, 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 and so we get into these situations where, you know, kids get an A on their AP grade and they get a two on the AP exam. Well, I mean, that's crazy. Uh, yeah. And th there's something wrong somewhere. And mm -hmm. so it, it, I think having to have a class, you know, a school credit in addition to the really, that may be where some of the difficulty comes from. Yeah. Yeah. That can create some of the, would you, would you uh, say anything different if it was AP versus IB? Do you have any sort of nuances or differences the way you would approach that? No, I don't think so. Because I mean, the, the only, I mean, it's five levels, not seven, mm -hmm. but it is, it's five. It's, it's, and, and the only difference is I think the, the categories aren't as clear in AP. AP is a little bit more content focused, right. but they, I mean, if you look at the AP courses on the AP website for every uh, AP course, it says, these are the skills um, that, and for every subject, it's somewhere between three and five. So those could easily be all of or most of the standards. And so you've got the structure, again, the structure is provided for you by the, you know, AP and in the same way the structure is provided for you by IB. Yeah, certainly. I think there's a lot there to take advantage of that I think we just have to continue to help folks see that structurally it's all there for the taking. And, you know, the one thing I do appreciate about the DP is the, is the two-year approach to it and the idea that the students have two years to grow into success. 
Um, I think there's a lot, again, that is structurally advantageous for folks looking to use more recent evidence and be able to align uh, with those things. So for sure. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, because you talked about Ontario and, and I know that many school districts across Canada and even in the United States still require percentage-based grades uh, as one example of an imperfect uh, kind of system, or that policy is being driven by their current electronic grade book, their, their grading program. So let's talk a little bit about the, the idea of going about this work under less than ideal circumstances or conditions. So if we've got a percentage-based uh, grade book that does not accept levels, does not accept characters, it doesn't accept descriptors, it's purely percentage-based. That's just one example of the imperfect uh, sorts of situations many teachers find themselves in. What is the best way to approach reforming our grading practices under those less than ideal conditions? Well, I like to think of it in one of two ways that are really very similar. We either compensate for the compulsory or we play with the gray. And so, yes, this is what we have to have at the end, mm -hmm. but it, it is only at the end that we have to have that, that we have to use the grade book as you described it. And it seems to me that we can, we can do all of the, the right things, if you like. Um, you know, if I, if I had to have percentage grades in my grade book, I only did percentages. I would be using a spreadsheet by with standards and levels, and then I would transfer that information to the electronic gradebook. Now, I know it's an extra step, it's more work, but I wouldn't feel I was doing my job if I didn't do that. That would be my way of compensating for the compulsory. Right. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, it, it really depends what the requirements are, but I believe in most situations, um, Without it being a you know a, a huge burden, you can just at least to some extent compensate for the compulsory. Yeah, I've had similar conversations with with teachers here in British Columbia when they say, "Well, we have to use percentage based grades." I say, "Well, you you have to use them when you submit the the final grades and marks to the Ministry of Education." That doesn't mean on a daily basis you have to report everything or record everything as a percentage-based grade as well. So those conversions that you talked about earlier, uh, where where we figure out how to to make that conversion for sure. Um, those, really those example, can I just give you a really good example of that? Of course, yeah. University of Toronto Schools uh, associated with UTS, uh, University of Toronto, but not yeah. part of you. possibly one of the most academic high schools any anywhere or seven to twelve schools. Competitive entry, uh, very, very high level academically. Over the last six or seven years, they have moved from everything being done in points and percentages because the Ontario require, report card requires that. All of their classroom assessment, all of their reporting except the final grade is done in five levels. Now, it seems to me if the most ac one of the most academic high schools, I would contend anywhere in the world can do that. Any school can do that. Not easy. It, it took a lot of work, a lot of professional learning and so on. Sure. But if, if, if UTS can do it, any school can do it. Yeah. There's just so many, you know, either incomplete components to a percentage-based grades or a ratio that doesn't look at quality, doesn't look at type of error, doesn't look at how the students have done. And you're right. You know, even for IB schools and AP schools, which we're talking about momentarily, you know, just, just a few moments ago, I should say, um, seven levels is better than a hundred. You know, it's 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 certainly more advantageous to to gain clarity around seven. And in a lot of schools, they say they're using seven levels, but most of the time they're using the top four or five levels 
and not really using the ones or twos anyway. So you're right. If, if, if we can, you know, cause often we associate those quote unquote high academic schools with very traditional environments. And if, if a school that's very traditional can make that kind of shift, then you're right. I think any school can definitely make that shift. Any other advice for schools or teachers? Um, what about the teacher who's who's solo. They're the, they're, they're the only one in their school for whatever reason it's 2021, but no one in the school has heard of any grading reform. They're the only one they went to a conference. They heard you speak, Ken, they've come back fired up. How do they get started? Well, make the changes that make sense for them, you know, and, and probably small steps rather than all at once. Make sure that I would say it's probably important that at least one administrator knows what they're doing, uh, and um, and again, it's they're 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 compensated compulsory. They're doing their own thing, but then at the end, they've got to fit into whatever is the school or the district requirement. But I mean, you and I know lots of people that have been in that situation uh, and were very successful um, in basically being standards-based, being learning-focused, but being maybe one or two teachers out of 100. Yeah. You know, it, it always begs the question, if your grades weren't solely determined from the quality of evidence that students produce, then you wonder what what were they based on before that? And, and sort of calls into question the way that we've determined that. But I agree with you. I think there's a lot that you can do inside your own classroom it really doesn't have anything to do with the electronic grade book or the board's policy or, or anything like that, that you can change in terms of shifting the culture around grading. And, and as, as the title of, the, of your original book, how to grade for learning, yeah. uh, that we can do all of that in our classrooms without needing the sort of crutch, if you will, of, I mean, it's always great to go to scale and to have folks in the school getting there, but uh, certainly we, we can do a lot in our classroom level. And the odd thing about that, uh, Tom, is that that was not my choice of title. The title <laughs> I submitted was good grades. And good grades. The, where how to, grade, how to Grade for Learning came from an editor at Corwin. No, not at Corwin, at Skylight, the original, yeah. original publisher. And yeah. I'm really glad that it did. But I think yeah. one thing in terms of when you talk about culture, I think I'd just like to add, and that is, sure. um, put a little bit tritely, but words matter. And so it is about the words that we use. And so to me, one of the biggest advantages of, of, of levels is they have real meaning. We can talk about proficiency. We can talk about approaching proficiency or whatever words we choose to use. And that has real meaning, whereas 73% has no meaning at all. Right. Um, and so it's we're using words rather than symbols. And, and teachers should use the words. I mean, as much as possible, we should, the numbers, the 4321 should only be in the grade book. Right. When we're when we're talking about students, is you're proficient, you're you're excelling, not you're a three, you're a four, or you're getting a three or a four. Right, right. So that that number has has to be followed with some sort of descriptive comment about and associated with that description of where you are in your proficiency or your growth or your journey. I I think that's a very important point because you're right. So many teachers will talk about well, right now you're a three. Now, over time, students may through osmosis kind of come to understand what a three means. But I think you're right. If we repeatedly use the language of what proficiency or, 
or what exemplary looks like or, or what developing or approaching or even a novice or whatever terminology we tend to use. I think that association starts to become ingrained in the students. I think it's a really, really important point because it's one thing for the teachers to have the, the association with the numbers, but it's another thing for the students and the parents to understand that association. And I think the repetitive nature of using the descriptors is a really, really important point. So I'm gonna shift gears here, uh, Ken, because a fun fact listeners about Ken and I is that we are both avid sports fans and we are almost always on the opposite side of most games. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure that the only team that we mutually cheer for is Arsenal football in, in London. So uh, there's this kind of uh, East West Vancouver Toronto rivalry that I think kind of sort of permeates everything, the lenses through which we examine sports, but uh, we often uh, debate many topics and, and de debate them from different perspectives. A lot of times can, you know, uh, you debate them from a referee's perspective and I'm going to get to that in a moment. And I debate them from an athlete or a, a player's perspective. Um, and the reason Ken uh, debates sports through the lens of a, a referee is because Ken has had quite an accomplished career. Many might not know this as a field hockey umpire. Um, so I'm, I'm curious and, and just for the benefit of listeners as well, how did that all come about? How did you, you know, become an umpire for field hockey and what are some of the, uh, and you've had some, what are some of the major highlights of your umpiring career? Well, field hockey is my lifetime sport. I started playing when I was 11 years old and I'm not playing anymore, but I'm still involved minimally. Um, and so I was a player for and um, many years at a reasonable level. And um, then somebody said, oh, well, you know, we need an umpire. How about giving it a try? So I did. And I found that I liked it um, and that I wasn't bad at it. And so I, I, I would have to say I really worked at it. I, you know, a lot of local and then it became provincial and then national. And so I was really lucky that I um, got opportunities to uh go to events overseas where I built my skills. Um, and eventually, uh, the way that it works in international field hockey is you have a class two badge, which you get after three games if nobody complains. And then there's a class one, which is after you've done more games and it's based on an, an average score. And then the, the ultimate is the World Cup and Olympic list. And I was promoted to that list in late 83, early 84. Um, and I then had the good fortune to uh, umpire, and we do call it umpiring in field hockey, yep. um, at the 1984 Olympics in Los Angeles and the 1990 World Cup in Lahore, Pakistan. So as events, they were my highlights. Um, as an individual uh, game, the, the highlight was certainly... Uh, at a tournament in Hong Kong in December of 1983. It was an Olympic preparation tournament. Um, I was appointed to the semi-final between India and Pakistan. And at that stage, India and Pakistan had totally dominated. They, they, they were just starting at the end of their domination. But India-Pakistan was a big deal. It was televised to millions of people in India and Pakistan. And um, I was fortunate I had a a good game and really it was that game my performance on that game that got me appointed to the to the 84 olympics so yeah i was really lucky i um umpired all around the world and uh it was a great experience 
I'm, I'm wondering if the system is still in place that in order to advance, you have to have no one complain because I don't know if in this modern era, I think complaining to referees and umpires is part of being an athlete. I know when I watch the NBA playoffs, I, I, I love the sport. I, I can't stand the constant complaining to the referees after every single call. It drives me crazy. When I say no one complained, that would mean would have meant in an official sense on a match, <laughs> on a match report. They might yes. have complained about individual decisions. Absolutely. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering how yeah. did you go through that and not have anyone complain? That would be okay. incredible. All no. right. So we're going to go on the record here. We're going to have one of our, our I'm going to give you the floor here in a moment, but we've had this discussion before, but we're going to get it on the record. Um, I'm, I'm over instant replay. I, I think instant replay in sports is ruining the fan experience. And I think professional sports, especially is really about the fans. There's no reason for any professional sport team to play another. There's no social significance. There's no impact. If those teams went away, there'd be no big deal. So it's, it's, it's really about the fans experience and the entertainment value and the delays for me, instant replay, the delays are too long. Replay is not fulfilling its promise because half the time they don't get the call right anyway because the evidence is inconclusive. So I, for one, am willing to live with human error uh, in sports. Uh, we've lived with it for over a century. Um, I'm I'm over it. I'm done with it. What say you, Ken? Um, I agree with you about the delays. I mean, I think it it you know it has to be done relatively quickly or it 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 loses its its value. Yeah. The way I look about look at it is. In many games, there are absolutely critical decisions in sports that are low scoring, in sports where there's a big difference between one score and another, like Aussie rules football, where there's you know, six points for a goal and one, you know, that's a big difference. Um, and in low scoring sports, like field hockey, like soccer, um, there are critical decisions that totally turn games. You know, in, in high scoring sports, I think it's probably not as significant because one decision really uh, won't make all that difference but but my perspective is that as you said is as an umpire as a referee and and i want those decisions to be right i don't want uh, it, it you know to be after the game well you know o'connor made the mistake on that and team a won and team b should have won or vice versa as long as it can be done fairly quickly um I, I would rather be shown that I was wrong and it be right for the game. And let me give you a quick example that actually happened in Vancouver. Um, Junior World Cup field hockey uh, in 19, what was it? 80 something. I can't remember the exact year. I'm umpiring India versus uh, Belgium. India attack, is attacking to my end. They come down, they put the ball in the net. I signal a goal and I'm heading back towards the center line. And I'm surrounded by 10 angry Belgians. You missed a certain foul. Um, and I hadn't seen it because in those days we had offside in field hockey and I had to check offside. Mm -hmm. It turned out that the Indian forward, uh, before they shot on goal, did co co uh, commit a foul. Um, I would have far rather than been instant replay. Yep, the guy did that, no goal. Um, rather than the the Belgians being, you know, and they, they didn't attack me, they just surrounded me. <laughs> I, would, I would have rather, and, and rather than being, you know, Ranker also still, because it was, because the Indians ended up winning with that goal. I would rather that have been a right, been the correct decision. And I think if it had been 
video replay, it could have been decided like that. Yeah. Well, fair enough. Um, I do find sometimes that referees now are a little bit reliant on replay, that they they can be a little bit hesitant. They can just let things play and, and go from there. But, uh, well, that's, you know, I mean, we've talked about that before. I just wanted to give you a chance to kind of <laughs> go on the record here. Let me give you one other quick example. Because <clears throat> sure. Yeah. The sport that I watch a lot at this time of the year is, is Aussie rules football. And mm -hmm. our ESN, our channel, puts on two games a week. And they, they only use it for decisions on goals. And there was a really good example in the game I watched on the weekend where the goal umpire thought it was a, a goal. The players that were scored against were adamant it wasn't. Within 30 seconds, the replay showed that the goal umpire was right. Uh, and so, you know, the ranker gets taken out of it. The, you know, uh, yeah. I don't think it has to be used for everything, but that's a good example where it's just used for one thing. And yeah. I, I think interesting. I just read today, for example, that the US Open tennis um, is doing away with the line uh, officials. It's all going to be the the electronic uh, covering yeah. of the lines. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see if if uh, you know baseball has toyed around with that idea of strike zones being uh, electronic as well, and some somehow managing to do. I don't know how they would do that, but I mean they have the little box on the screen right now as it is. So uh, there may be a way to do that. But but if we had instant replay, Ken, we would not have had the hand of God from Maradona in the '86 World Cup. I know that. Uh, England supporters would probably beg to differ and wish there was uh, replay at that time, but uh, but certainly the iconic moment from from the '86 World Cup uh, and uh, and sending Argentina uh, on in the tournament. Um, okay, uh, time now for uh, three questions. Uh, I'm good, as you know, I'm going to ask you kind of three fun, lighthearted questions so listeners can get. I mean, we've got a little personal here already with your field hockey uh, umpiring and and uh, and our sports. Wasn't really a, wasn't really a, a heated debate. I didn't want to go down that road, but uh, we'll maybe do that another time. <laughs> if Vancouver and Toronto ever face each other in the hockey playoffs, of course, we'd have to have a decent team uh, for that to happen. Um, okay, so let's let's go. Uh, three questions. Here's the first one: <clears throat> When all of the, or at least most of the COVID restrictions are over, uh, what is the one thing you look forward to doing the most? Hmm. Um. Hugging my grandchildren. Mm. That's a good one. <laughs> That's definitely a good one. It's probably been tough as a grandparent. Uh, I can imagine that it's been just so because that's so instinctive that it would be hard to uh, you've seen them, of course, or or but physically uh, distance. Mostly on Zoom. Okay. We have had a few occasions where we've mostly met in parking lots and right. uh and you know stayed reasonably distanced but it hasn't been we zoom weekly yeah. some some meetings some of slightly doubtful legality but uh, you know we were careful yeah well we'll 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 just let that i won't i won't press you for details on 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 that part <laughs> and tell me more about how you broke the law no i'm just not going to do that all right question 2 uh, what is the one Australian custom or aspect of Australian living that you think the rest of the world needs to adopt? I, I suppose that, you know, the thing that, and it's a bit sort of cliche, but the, the mateship idea, the idea of, you know, um, being friends and calling each other mates and um, just um, 
I'm not suggesting that all Australians get along wonderfully all the time with everybody, but it, the, it, the, that ethos has has yeah. existed, and I think yeah. still does to a considerable extent. And I think it's it, it's helped by um, you know, the the outdoor lifestyle mm -hmm. because of climate. Right, right. There's a, there's a kind of camaraderie that that uh, I know in in a very small way I've seen and experienced in in different settings and different circumstances. And I, 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 it's interesting you said that because I have, I have noticed that about that, that level of camaraderie for sure. Um, okay. Question three, we talked about your sports fandom. Uh, you're an avid sports fan. And uh, I asked this question of Bill Ferreter back in the fall, and I want to get your take on it. And it's the question about the one professional or college sports team that you hope loses every single time they play a game, no matter who they're playing, no matter what's going on, this is the team that you will cheer against above all other teams. Every Boston team, expect, especially the New England Patriots. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, Ken. I think there's another team that we may not cheer for the same teams, but I am definitely uh, not a fan of the New England Patriots, nor do I cheer for any of the the uh, the Boston teams, especially after the 2011 Stanley Cup final when Boston uh, beat the Canucks in the uh, in the seven game series there, and we lost four nothing at home. But uh, but who's remembering the details, right? <laughs> it's a tough one. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, it's interesting. Um, Bill said the same thing. He said the Boston Bruins. So for those of you who are fans of Boston sports teams, you have to know that uh, there's a lot of us out here not cheering for your success. <laughs> Can I have one final question? Of course, it's a question I ask everyone I interview. It's a question about success and happiness. And of course, I know you've heard others answer the question as well. So the question is, of course, if a random person stopped you on the street and asked you, uh, what is your definition of success? How would you answer them? I think I'd answer it in, in one word initially, and that would be impact, that um, somehow or other, uh, personally, uh, professionally, um, I've had some sort of a positive impact. Um, and you know, some of your words at the beginning, I think, uh, uh, you know, made me feel good about that. And I, I suspect the other way that I look at it, you may have similar feelings. I... I look, my, I look at my adult children uh, as parents uh, and I'm really impressed with them as parents. And I'd like to think, you know, I had some impact on that. And um, so that, 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 that would be the way I would answer that. Yeah. Well, then there is no question that you have been successful because Ken, there is no doubting your impact both uh, professionally and personally. Uh, in terms of of the impact you've had in education and uh, and and around the world, uh, it's been been an impressive career that is continuing and going strong, and shows no signs of slowing down. So uh, uh, it's it's really impressive, listeners. You can and should follow Ken if you're not already. I'm sure many of you are, but if you're not following Ken on Twitter, you should follow Ken on Twitter. His Twitter handle is at KenOC7, the number seven. So at KenOC. Number seven, Ken also administers, along with Garnet Hillman, uh, the Standards-Based Learning and Grading Facebook page. So if you're interested in joining that group and being a part of the conversation, many people posting questions and, and talking about different uh, things that are happening in their schools, looking for resources, rubrics, et cetera, uh, that's all happening on that Facebook page. So again, the Standards-Based Learning and Grading Facebook page, 
uh, and Ken, along with Garnet, administer that. And uh, it's a really, really great resource to connect with folks who are like-minded, sometimes challenging each other, but a, but a great resource for all of us. So, uh, Ken, I just I can't thank you enough for being here today. Thanks so much. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed a, a, an enjoyable conversation, uh, as it always is when when we get, we get together. So, thank you, Tom. In Assessment Corner this week, I want to circle back to Bergstrom and West and their chapter, Numbers and Nonsense, in their book, as they have a short discussion about testing in schools. I also want to preface this section by saying that I think so much of their discussion just reinforces a lot of what Tom Guskey and I talked about in the bonus episode on standardized testing back in February. So if you haven't listened to that bonus episode, it's about a 30-minute conversation. I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to that. Now, in the chapter on numbers and nonsense, Bergstrom and West begin the mention of schools by quoting psychologist Donald Campbell. Campbell says, quote, Achievement tests may well be valuable indicators of general school achievement under conditions of normal teaching aimed at general competence. But when test scores become the goal of the teaching process, they both lose their value as indicators of educational status and distort the educational process in undesirable ways. End quote. Bergstrom and West follow that quote with this, quote, If no one knew that you were going to evaluate schools by looking at test scores of students, test scores might provide a reasonable way of measuring schools' effectiveness. But once teachers and administrators recognize test scores will be used to evaluate their effectiveness, they have every incentive to find ways of raising their students' scores, even at the expense of the quality of their education. They may, quote, teach to the test, for example, rather than teaching critical thinking, end quote. So this brings to mind the idea that both sides of this conversation are going to have to concede a little bit. The current standardized testing protocols, especially in the United States, are deeply flawed and do lead to less than favorable adult behavior, less than favorable student behavior, less than favorable parental behavior, I mean, the list is too long in terms of the ways that people have behaved poorly as a result of these standardized testing protocols. The current protocols need to be reimagined, and that's what Tom and I talked about back in that bonus episode. Now, some might assert, you know, let's just get rid of them all. Let's remove them all together. But it's not that simple as just removing them and just saying, well, you should trust teachers. I trust teachers. And, and you can trust teachers, but simultaneously you can see that there is a real place for some sort of external verification of learning, especially in public schools, emphasis being on the public. It is not wrong for any publicly funded entity to have checks and balances. We are accountable to the public. I mean, you take your car to a second mechanic if you don't like the quote you got. You'll go see a second doctor for a second opinion, there are always external checks for everything. So we in education are not immune to that. But again, we have to reimagine the system that holds, as Tom referred to in that bonus episode, that holds the system accountable, the district accountable, but not the individual teacher. The collective results versus the individual results, right? Because the idea that large-scale assessment is going to drive day-to-day -day classroom decisions is, it's at best, wishful thinking. It's not going to happen. So we don't need the external checks to be drilled down to evaluate teachers. We don't need it drilled down to the individual student level.
Now I wanna pick up on this idea of teach to the test. On the one hand, we can become quite cynical when test scores become the focal point for teaching. In this case, the impression is that teaching to the test is somewhat arbitrary and manipulative. On the other hand, it's unethical to test that which has not been taught. So when tests, and again, we can take a very expansive view of what a quote unquote test is, you know, performance tasks, projects, all, all of those things, we are testing the knowledge. So when I use the word test, I'm not suggesting it only be a stapled packet of paper and bubble sheets. But when we have that expansive view, when tests are actually reflective of the learning goals, then we actually should be teaching to the test. I mean, none of us enjoyed that feeling where a test seemed to be completely disassociated from what was learned in class. I had that experience in university more than one time where it was clear, uh, we never covered that topic during any class time. And I can assure you that I confirmed that with my classmates, so it wasn't just me. Okay, we all sort of looked around saying, did we cover that? But it was on the test because surely the professor just pulled the exam out of the filing cabinet, copied it, and, and that's what we were doing. That was frustrating. It's not reasonable to assess where no one knows, right? You can't hide this in secrecy the way that Bergstrom and West talked about in that chapter. Honesty, transparency, and clarity are hallmarks of a modern assessment culture. The concern, again, is that people, including students, change their behavior. So what are we supposed to do? Bergstrom and West offer this advice. Quote, If you're in the position to measure something, think about whether measuring it will change people's behaviors in ways that undermine the value of the results. If you're looking at quantitative indicators that others have compiled, ask yourself, are these numbers measuring what they're intended to measure? Or are people gaming the system and rendering this measure as useless? End quote. Let's say that again. Are they measuring what they're intended to measure? That sounds a lot like validity. Reliability, of course, precedes validity. So really what we're talking about here are sound principles of measurement. Now, Maybe teachers can't be psychometricians, but we can at least employ some of the more favorable practices to the best of our ability. When doing more learning and achieving a higher level or grade become synonymous, then students, game the system all you want. The only gaming that's occurring in the system is by the teacher, because the teacher has created a situation where there is only one way for the student to advance. If what's being measured changes their behavior, then we have to make sure it's in only one way, that their behavior has changed in only one way, that they are preparing more, that they are studying more, that they are investigating more thoroughly, that they're expanding the possibility of solutions, that they're innovating their approach. The change in behavior is doing more learning. That has to be the result. Now, we not, may not like external measures. No one you know, loves to be externally measured. But they are likely here to stay in some way, shape, or form. But that said, again, we can reimagine what that external assessment might look like. That it could give districts more useful information about programming, about instructional emphasis, and about the allocation of resources. 
It could give districts the kind of information. It could give states and provinces important information about how the collective student body is achieving without having it drill down to the individual teacher or the individual student. And there you can have a balanced assessment system that serves the idea of accountability for the district or the system, but not necessarily drilling it down to the individual student level. So teach to the test? Well, absolutely. As long as what's being tested is that which was taught. Okay, a few reminders as we finish up today. First, a reminder about the Achieve Institute coming virtually this August 16th through 18th. That is myself, Cassandra Erkins, Nicole Dimich, and Katie White. Information on the solutiontree.com website. There's a link for that in the show notes as well. Second, I want to remind you to check out all the podcasts on the Teach Better Podcast Network. That's teachbetter.com slash podcasts. Third, the podcast is now officially in summer mode. So the summer series is going to begin for the next three months, June, July, August. We're going to be in every other week format, summer series beginning. We've got seven potential topics chosen, universal design for learning, women in leadership, trauma-informed practices, indigenous education, social emotional learning, racial equity in schools, and standards-based grading. So let me know if you or someone you know would be a great guest for one of those topics. Really looking for some practitioners to join in on that conversation. Obviously, I'll need some details about the work you're doing, but please DM me on Twitter or send me an email. That'd be great. So remember to follow the podcast on Twitter for updates. That's at Tom Shimmer Pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Tom Shimmer. Shimmer Education on Facebook, at Tom Shimmer Podcast on Instagram. Lots of places to connect there. And don't forget about the YouTube channel as well, Tom Shimmer Podcast, the YouTube channel. Also, uh, email your questions for Assessment Corner or suggestions for uh, anything around the podcast, tomshimmerpod at gmail.com. If enough questions come in or we have some assessment topics, maybe a bonus episode over the summer just to talk about some specifics, no problem there. would love to hear from you. Otherwise, we'll pick up on Assessment Corner in September. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, of course. And if you like the podcast, please spread the word about the podcast to your friends and your colleagues. I really appreciate that. Have a great week, everyone. 